uh, as has uh, been mentioned, but we certainly can't mention it enough. Happy Mother's Day. All of you moms, such a blessing. Uh, you know, in reality, it's just, there's not enough words to express gratitude for you. You're vital in the life of a family, of course, vital in the life of the church. <laughs> you know, homes would be in anarchy without you. You have a high calling from God. You know, there's a reason why when people get interviewed, they usually talk about their moms, thanking them, being grateful for, for her. So on this Mother's Day, just as a small token of appreciation and gratitude for you from the church, we do have something for you, a small gift. Um, so on your way out, you'll notice a table there. Uh, we have something for you. So on your way out, please uh, please take that from us, uh, just as a, as a small token from the church. With that, let's pray. Oh Lord, we need your help. Lord, we want more than anything to see Christ exalted. There's much evil around us that at times would leave us wondering what is it we are to do. And so I pray for this morning, God. May through your word our minds be transformed, our hearts stirred to live lives of holiness, to live lives of godliness, to be obedient to the One who saved us. Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. In Christ's name, Amen. In the article titled, The Pagan Boom, published on media platform Dazed, Digital, Charlotte Richardson outlines the gradual decline of society, a society increasingly becoming secular and pagan. And she links it to people no longer following organized religion. Quote, for many, modern paganism represents a personal and collective process of decolonization and a desire for spiritual autonomy, where monotheism relies almost universally on dogma, hierarchy, and doctrine, paganism offers inclusivity and self-direction. It puts the spiritual power back in your hands. I can shape my life or destiny any way I want. I can believe anything I want, and no one can really tell me otherwise. End quote. Such is so descriptive of the world that we live in, isn't it? A world that's culturally bent inwardly. Looking only to self. How can I fulfill my desires? And how can I fulfill my wants? And who will give it to me? Or who can I take advantage of? Me, me, me. It's all about me. And the world revolves around me. I don't think any of this is a surprise. You know, in a sense, we've been spoiled living here in America, where we've essentially enjoyed about 150 years of Christian influence on society. And it's reflected in certain conservative laws, practices. It's allowed for us to enjoy a certain amount of comfort in living here. Oh, dear church, that is gone. Gone. If you didn't think that was gone, all you need to do is just go to the local grocery store where our laws are such that pretty much anyone can steal or shoplift, it's pretty much legal as long as it's under $950. Just walk out. You know, if you didn't think we live in a pagan nation, then I ask, if you drive a Prius, you may walk out one day and maybe your catalytic converter may still be there. Maybe it won't. Increase in crime. A degrading morality. And while the supposed landmark Supreme Court case, Roe v. Wade, looks to be overturned, looks that way, powers will now be granted granted at the state level. And we know for certain what this state will do. And oh, by the way, if you live here, how can we forget? Higher taxes, 
not so subtle attempts of indoctrinating our children in public schools, high gas prices, problems with homelessness, disregard for human life, releasing violent offenders because of over, overcrowding and budgetary issues and how can we forget high cost of living. I mean, when you think about it, why would anyone want to live here? Why would anyone want to live here? I mean, the answer is easy. It's time to go. Why stick around for all this evil while I can join the millions of, quote, left UGs and flock to other states where where my morals align with that state's morals. And, and man, the people are nicer. And, oh, by the way, I can pursue lower taxes and safer streets and higher school district ratings and schools that don't teach CRT or transgenderism. Man, let's just get out of Dodge. So crazy here. Look for something else. We can hire the real estate company Conservative Move, where their tagline is, quote, we're moving you to values, prosperity, and safety. Sounds awesome, doesn't it? You know, and considering the backdrop of all I just laid out, it almost sounds logical. Dear church, while it may sound logical in our minds, would it surprise you that the Word of God has something different to say? Would it so offend our modern sensibilities that the Word of God, rather than encourage us to go, actually encourages us to plant our feet? And be committed to where He has us. That there's work for us to do right here. That, that there are people whom God has chosen and they need to hear the gospel. They need to, they need to hear sound doctrine. They need to see sound living. They need to see lives transformed by the gospel light. Your church is at its brightest. Where it's darkest. You'll notice that not one passage of scripture ever has us retreating. Not one passage of scripture ever encourages us to find easier. Not one passage of Scripture ever has us looking for heaven on earth. Not one passage of Scripture ever encourages us to look for where the grass is greener. Actually, Scripture is here to remind us that new zip codes don't guarantee clean hearts. God's Word reminds us that even greener pastures have brown spots. You may think, man, pastor has a bone to pick with somebody. Somebody got to him, man. You know, I want to tell you I don't. I don't. What I will tell you is such is the context that we find ourselves in Titus chapter 3. So please turn there as we make our way through this little book, Titus chapter 3, chapter 1 of Titus, focus on elders. If you remember that, appointing godly leaders in the church so that the church would be set in order on the island of Crete. Chapter 2, then focus on the church member, the believer, and encourages us how to live. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and slaves. How we are to live lives within the church and how sound doctrine manifests in sound living. And as we now transition to chapter 3, Paul turns his focus on encouraging Titus to encourage the Cretan Christians. This is how you live in a pagan, evil society. This is how you are to live in the world. Oh dear church, the word of God is relevant for us today, isn't it? We live in a pagan society. Increasingly evil, Crete, dear church, is every bit of what we are experiencing, if not worse. Much has been said about the context of the island of Crete, what what life was like there, the kind of people that lived there in previous sermons, so I'm not going to belabor the point. What we'll find here, though, is Paul doesn't comment on the society, per se. Paul doesn't comment on us as Christians needing to moralize our surroundings. Paul doesn't tell us that we need to Christianize everything around us. No, Paul simply acknowledges that where we live is evil, yet in the midst of it, this is how you live. For the glory of Christ and His gospel. In this darkness, dear church, in this, in this evil, dear Christian, you are to be light. You are to be zealous for good works. The church is not to be a legislative arm. The, the church isn't to moralize our surroundings. That's, that's not the work of the church. The work of the church is to preach the gospel of the glorious Christ so that people would be saved. And it's the transformed heart that manifests a transformed life 
all of the moralistic laws that we all desire and nothing wrong with wanting laws tough on crime, nothing wrong with wanting laws that value the sanctity of life. Those are good. Those are very good. And those we need desperately. But those won't change hearts. Christ changes hearts. And the lives that we live is a powerful testimony to the outside world. So read with me our text for this morning. Titus chapter 3. Starting in verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the whole, by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. The title of this sermon is Godly Living in an Evil World. And this text encourages us, dear church, and this will serve as the main thrust of all that I say this morning, that in the midst of evil, we are to live godly lives Reflecting God's grace for Christ's glory. Live godly lives reflecting God's grace for Christ's glory. We're going to have four points. Four reminders that will guide our time this morning. First, Paul reminds believers in verses 1 and 2, this is how you are to live. Second, Paul reminds believers, verse 3, this is how you used to live. Third, Paul reminds believers of the gospel, verses 4 to 7. And our fourth and last point, Paul reminds believers of the implications of godly living, verse 8. So beginning in verses 1 and 2, Paul here reminds believers how they are to live. Paul here gives seven injunctions and begins with the imperative, which we know is a command. Remind them. This is written in the present tense, meaning... This command is something to be continually given to believers. To be reminded implies that what is about to be said are things that the Cretan Christians already knew. They already knew this. But just like us, they needed continual reminder. Oh, God knows we can easily forget. And many times Paul uh, commands believers, remember, be reminded. Remember when you were separate from Christ, Paul says. Remember Christ risen from the dead. Oh, dear church, we are we're, we're being reminded to remember in and of itself has a cleansing effect on the Christian. Consider the Lord's table. As we partake of Christ's meal, as we partake of the bread and the cup, as we remember Christ, it has a cleansing effect on us, a, a purifying effect. You see, this reminding isn't simply just to recall some knowledge back into my, my mental capacity. No, it's a recalling of an intimate knowledge so as to cause action. It's something I know so that it's going to thrust me to do something. It's an intimate knowledge recalling something you already know so that you will live in a certain way. Recalling in your mind sound doctrine that will produce sound living. And this sound living will remind you first to be subject to rulers, to authorities. The first reminder there refers to, to subjecting oneself to the secular government that is in charge you know, Paul outlines in depth, Romans 13, the reasons, which are also seven, on why people, including believers, are under a divine obligation to respect and obey human government. Obviously, we don't have time to go through all seven. However, God is clear that these governments are established by Him and we are not to resist. If you remember back in Titus 2, 
the word subject there is urged of bond slaves to their masters, also urged of young women in relation to their husbands. To be subject is a voluntary act. It's a, it's a willing act of the one submitting. It's not begrudging. In, a, in other words, the Cretan Christians were to continually, voluntarily place themselves under the authority of the government. They were to submit. Not necessarily because the government or, or individual government officials were worthy of our submission, but because by submitting to them, they were honoring God and obeying His Word. Back in Matthew 22, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they were plotting against Jesus. And they're asking Him, is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? They knew that if Jesus said yes, He would be discredited by the Jews who hated the excessive Roman taxes. And that if He said no, He would be arrested for treason against Rome. They were trying to trap Him. And in Matthew 22, 18, just listen, but Jesus perceived their malice and said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought Him a denarius. And He said to them, whose likeness an inscription is this. They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed. And leaving him, they went away. You know, Jesus here didn't suggest that the tax was fair. Or that the money would be used for good purposes. Jesus didn't comment on whether the tax was so high that it was unjust. Of course it was unjust. Jesus simply stated that it should be paid. Christ didn't exempt himself from the payment of taxes. You know, the Roman government who controlled Crete was thoroughly paid. Evil. Morally debauched. Oppressive. Unjust. Brutal. Nevertheless, Paul makes clear your obligation, dear Christian, you are to be subject. Remember, Paul says, these rulers has already been disarmed. Colossians 2, which was written a few years before our book in Titus. So therefore, while you are here, you can have hope. Why? Because you know who's really in charge. You are to be obedient, law-abiding. And of course, the exception here The exception to being obedient is when we are being commanded to do something that God expressly says not to do or to not do something that God expressly states to do. And we find such exception in Acts 4 where the Sanhedrin ordered Peter and John, stop preaching. And they stated, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. You know, we, we as in Cornerstone, got a taste of this, didn't we? You can't have religious services. You can't sing. Oh, no. No, no, no. You know, we'll obey you. We'll, we'll have services outside. We'll, we'll put up signs regarding masks. We'll even have a section for strict adherence to social distancing. But we're, we're going to meet. Because God expressly states that that's what we do. You are to be ready for every good deed. You know, our confession, dear church, it's only as good as the lives we live that back that up. You know, Paul here is referring to a genuine, a a sincere, spirit-empowered eagerness to serve others. We are to be ready. We are to be prepared because the opportunity to do good can happen at any time. It doesn't necessarily specify what the good deeds could be, But we can presume, and I believe rightly, that they can be sharing the gospel with someone. Showing kindness to someone who doesn't deserve it. Being diligent at work, even when no one else is. Specifically though, being that this injunction comes immediately after being obedient and subject to rulers and authorities. So we can derive from our context that it implies good deeds in relation to the government. Paying of taxes. Law-abiding. Rendering what is due to them. There is a drought. And the news says there is a drought. And that the reservoirs are, are, are critically low. So this summer is going to be a tough one. And our local government says you can't water your grass. 
can't water your grass, so what do we do? Then we don't water our grass. I may not believe there's a drought, or you may think, oh, they're lying to me, and nonetheless, that's not the point, is it? It's not the point. This is difficult, no doubt, especially in a culture where doing bad is cool, and, and, and doing, doing bad, breaking the law, and resisting authority and government, it's what's good and acceptable and expected, and we need to be reminded. Don't lose heart. Don't grow weary in doing good, Galatians 6, 9. And in verse 10, so then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Oh, do good to everyone, but especially your fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. And as we gather together, may we stir one another up to love and good deeds. And as we manifest this, then we manifest godliness because he himself, God, Psalm 119, 68, is good. And does good. You are to malign no one. In other words, Christian, you are to speak evil of no one. You are to speak ill of no one. Here Paul begins to transition focus to not just the government or government officials, but to include all people. Paul's not saying by this admonition that Christians must be muzzled and that Christians are to stay quiet regarding the evil going on around them. No, no, we're, that, that we are to be naive and not evaluate what's happening and call it out for what it is. No, Paul just did that in chapter 1. Regarding false teachers, rather, Paul is encouraging and urging Christians, restrain your natural inclination to say the worst about people. You know, our social media has made maligning people very easy. I even see, I see it with well-meaning believers getting into Twitter beefs. You know, so easy to participate and the devil has made it so easy. It takes very little effort to malign people. You don't even need to confront anyone. You just type and post as if nothing is wrong, but we are being reminded, don't live that way. Don't live that way. The word malign is the word blasphemeo. You can already hear it, can you? Where we get our word blaspheme to slander someone especially those in power because they are easy targets for us with what they say and the policies they push and the hypocritical lives and behavior that they represent. They are ripe for us to malign. Why? Because in our righteous indignation leads us to want to tell them how bad they are. Our righteous indignation wants to, wants to blast people to say how terrible you are acceptable by the world's standards, but the complete opposite of what we are called to do and be. To live a quiet and peaceable life. And that brings us to our next injunction, to be peaceable. You're not to be a contentious person. You know anybody like this? They seem to just be looking for fights all the time. What gets them going is controversy. They just love to say things that evoke emotion. Someone who's contentious is a person who's quarrelsome. They're, they're, uh, they're belligerent. Paul admonished believers in Rome, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Christ said, blessed are the peacemakers. Yes, we can become angry at the evil going on, but let's not be surprised by it. Let's not become hostile towards unbelievers when they act like unbelievers. You are to be gentle, fair. This has the idea of sweet, reasonable. You don't hold grudges. Rather, you give people the benefit of the doubt. And lastly, you are to show every consideration for all men. You know, different translations use different adjectives to try and describe this. And I think when we actually put it all together, it paints a really good picture for us. Perfect courtesy, the RSV says. True humility, the NIV says. A consistently gentle disposition, the NEV says. You know, this is closely connected to the previous two injunctions that we just discussed. And notice the inclusivity here. It's all men, for all men, for everyone. Not just government officials, but your neighbors, your co-workers, your classmates, all men. This word for showing consideration in other texts is translated as meekness speaks of our Lord Jesus. You embody meekness and gentleness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.1 So 
So as followers of Christ, this is how we are to live. In an evil, crooked generation, our calling isn't necessarily to fight for our rights and our privileges, and it isn't necessarily to find some place that aligns with our righteous moral thinking. Rather, our calling is to live soundly, to live a gospel-transformed life, that in this corrupt world we are to be subject, to be obedient, maligning no one, doing good deeds, not being contentious, being gentle, showing consideration for all men. And you may think, man, you are out of your mind. This life is impossible. You're crazy. Who can live like this? You mean live like this here? Don't you know where we are? Don't you see how they are? Lord, your church, Paul knows how you're thinking. Because that's also how the Cretan Christians were thinking. Which is why he immediately transitions to verse 3 in our next point. He reminds us of how we used to live. You know, when you, dear Christian, are reminded of just how bad you were, then you would be so quick to judge those who live the way you used to live. Verse 3, For we also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. You know, this is not new for Paul. It's not new for Paul to give lists. Sinful lists that describe the unbeliever. Just listen to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. How about to the church in Galatia? Galatians 5. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. One more. There's a lot. I'll just go one more. Ephesians, the church. So this I say and affirm, Ephesians 4.17, together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And O Paul didn't exclude himself, even though, he said, 1 Timothy 1, 13, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. So back to our text, notice Paul including himself, saying, for we, not you, we, we also once were foolish. Oh, such is the state of man before being saved by God. Totally depraved. You know, it's not as if an unsaved person commits all of these sins listed out. And, you know, very possibly a person could, could outwardly live a moral life. A young person maybe hasn't even lived long enough and hasn't been given enough time to perform these sins. The thrust, though, of these lists are such that no matter how outwardly right and moral your life looks, our darkened hearts are such that they're inclined this way. You know, apart from faith, nothing will please God, as Ephesians 2 says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are in enmity with God. We were by nature children of wrath. We naturally lived in such a way as to live for ourselves. We naturally wanted to control our own destinies. We wanted to be the gods of our own worlds. We worshipped ourselves. We worshipped idols rather than to give worship to whom worship is due. Titus, Paul says, be reminded this was you if not for the grace of God. So when you get frustrated, Titus, at the Cretan Christians, because they are getting so angry and frustrated towards unbelievers acting like unbelievers in a pagan world, living in pagan ways, remember, you were just like that. 
You were foolish. Which means you completely lacked understanding. You were completely ignorant of the truth about God. And no matter how much knowledge one has being foolish, Romans 1 says, suppresses, willingly, willingly suppresses the truth. You were disobedient to any and all laws and to any and all who were in authority, such as the reason for the earlier injunction to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient because you formerly were the opposite. You were deceived. You were led astray, believing lies to be truth in the context of the Cretan church. Remember in chapter 1, false teachers whom Titus was to refute. They were teaching things. They were rebellious men that, that, that were teaching things they should not be teaching in order to turn you away from the truth, to purposely lead you away. You were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures that the unsaved, the unbeliever, willfully and willingly chooses sin. He does so because in his very constitution, he is sinful. Therefore, has neither the desire nor the ability to be anything but sinful. You are slaves of sin, meaning you are bound to it. Sin was your was your master. Even doing something good in the world's eyes was done not for the glory of God, but for some selfish reason. And lastly, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. This is a present, active, participle. Stay with me here. It carries the idea that the unbeliever's life consistently looked this way. It was very normal for their life to manifest this way. In malice, which is evil. Envying, which is not being satisfied with what they had. Rather, always craving for more. Such is indicative of, of, of Cretans, right? They, they could not control their consumption. They're, they're always searching for more to fill their thirst. And of course, nothing is satisfying them. So what does this naturally lead to? Living a life that is hateful, hating one another, despising anyone that stands in their way, that maybe has a different opinion than them, blowing them up on social media for all to see. Such is the culmination of a life lived apart from God. Rather than, rather than obey the greatest commandment, to love God and to love thy neighbor, such sinful life hates God, hates their neighbor. You know, being reminded how you used to live, it's uh, its not uplifting, is it? You know, this walk down memory lane is intentional by Paul because he knows before, you know, before we get on our high holy horse, we need to be reminded that those we get so upset at for only acting the way they should be acting, we were just like them. Our hearts were far from God. Our, our deeds were detestable The way we naturally and consistently lived, it denied God. But set against this backdrop of darkness, Paul transitions us to the glorious gospel. Our third point, Paul reminds believers of the gospel, verses 4 through 7. You know, that's one long sentence in the Greek. Just one long sentence, and we can truly, not even exaggerating here, spend a lifetime contemplating the truths of this of these verses you know such as the glorious gospel the through the though a time this morning we're, we're simply gonna fly over it as it were you know i encourage you in your own times your own devotion times your own times of study to dive deep dive deep into these truths and it starts there in verse four but when the kindness of god notice right away who is the one taking action in our salvation. It is God. The initiator. God intervened. And this has to be true. And you may ask, why is that it has to be true? Because remember verse 3. We didn't want Him. We're often described as sheep, aren't we? You know, do you think that sheep hang out? Unfortunately, the sheep that we did have, they're gone now. <laughs> that was the fire prevention thing. Uh, it was cool to see them, but now they're gone. But, you know, in looking at them, do you think sheep hang out and they talk with one another and they say, hey man, do you know where the shepherd is? Let's go look for him. No way. Because Isaiah 53, 6 tells us we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has gone our own way. Men love darkness rather than light. Our depraved nature is such that we ran away from God, not, not towards Him. Oh, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, it's His nature, dear church, to be kind, to be benevolent. This connotes a 
a genuine goodness on behalf of God, a genuine generosity from his heart. Our God is a saving God and desires that all men be saved and that none would perish, just like our hearts are naturally oriented away from God, his heart is naturally oriented toward us. God shows the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Oh, dear church, we need to be reminded that it is the kindness of God. It is the patience of God. It is God's tolerance to not snuff us all out and give us what we deserve. But it is His long-suffering kindness that leads us to repentance. And this is good news. This is good because for those of you here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you don't have a relationship with Him, and you know, if you're being honest, with yourself that your life is descriptive of verse 3, then I want to tell you that in the kindness of God, He brought you here so that you would hear of His glorious grace. And may His kindness lead you to repent, lead you to ask for forgiveness, lead you to, in faith, beg God, forgive me, for I am a sinner. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, this word love is not the word we normally associate with love, which is agape love. No, this word is the word philanthropia, where we get our English word philanthropy. This refers to God's compassion. It refers to His desire to deliver someone from pain. It refers to God's compassionate nature to such that He doesn't want to see you you know, he doesn't want to see you troubled. He doesn't want to see you in danger. It's, you know, it's beyond simply feeling sorry for someone. And it's beyond really any kind of emotion. No, God's philanthropic love leads to action. And what action did his love for mankind lead to? Sending his son Jesus. His love for mankind appeared. I believe this to be a reference to Christ's incarnation, Christ becoming man. God's glory made visible the manifestation of wisdom in person. When Christ appeared, Christ pitched his tent among men. Christ tabernacled himself, John chapter 1. Paul had already discussed this truth back in chapter 2.11. We heard that last week. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. And further in chapter 2, verse 13 looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ. Jesus, this is Christ. And His appearing here refers to all that He did in redemption. His life. His death. His resurrection. Verse 5, which is the pinnacle of really this, this passage here. He saved. He saved us. Your church, may we, remind, may we be reminded that He, God, saved us. We didn't save ourselves. Matter of fact, we couldn't save ourselves. You know, if it weren't for God intervening, intervening we wouldn't even want to be saved. The depth of our depravity, we couldn't save ourselves, we're completely incapable of doing anything good, we didn't want to be saved, and we know, because again, Romans 1 tells us what the truth is, and we willingly suppress it. Oh, the depths of our sinful nature that influences our wicked hearts, that manifest evil and detestable deeds, but unequally, dear church, unequally deep, the depths and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unfathomable, how unsearchable are His ways. Our depravity runs deep, but His grace runs deeper still. He saved you. The word sozo, which can refer to physical, some temporary healing. We see that all throughout the Gospels, but most often in Scripture, it's used of spiritual salvation. It's used of rescuing you from danger. You were in danger. You know, you weren't drowning. You already drowned. You weren't dying. You were already dead. 
The penalty of sin is the wrath of God. Eternal torment. Spiritual death. And in the midst of that, God saved you. How did He save you? Back to our text. Verse 5. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. That's not how we were saved. Apart from faith, we can't please Him. Paul in Philippians 3, he, he outlines all of the righteous deeds that he had done, which were a lot. And in the world's eyes, they seem to be more than enough. All the things Paul did in Philippians chapter 3 that he outlined, this was more than enough to earn favor with God. Even the world is telling me this is more than enough. And then Paul sums all of that up as a rubbish. Dung. Excrement. Refuse. Worthless. Detestable. And as my soon-to-be seven-year-old would so aptly describe it, poo-poo. This is every bit of what Paul encouraged Titus to refute. Because the false teachers were peddling some, some gospel plus doctrine. They were peddling some Jesus plus doctrine that Jesus plus don't touch that. Jesus plus don't eat this. On and on and on. And the more rituals we do, the, the, the higher we can get. And this is what God wants from us. This is what they were teaching. The more rituals we do, the more favor we would earn with God, which is why we're going to keep tacking on the list. And, and, and the Tower of Babel they were building was getting higher. We're getting closer to God. And Paul's reminding us all of that is worth nothing. Christ doesn't want that. Christ wants your heart. Isaiah 64, 6. Just listen, for all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. You know, some of your translations may say filthy rags. This refers to a soiled cloth from a woman's menstrual cycle. It's vivid visual it's God's way of communicating to us you think you can do something to earn salvation but you can't even the best you have to offer righteous deeds it doesn't just fall short it doesn't even count so how did he save you according to his mercy Oh, be reminded that God saved you not because you are deserving of it. No, God saved you because He is a merciful God. The word mercy is defined this way, quote, the self-moved, spontaneous, loving kindness of God which causes Him to deal in compassion and tender affection with the miserable and distressed. God's mercy is such that it doesn't, it doesn't just show pity to those who are to be pitied, but it also means that he has the resources to meet the needs of those who are needed. You know, in some ways, mercy is related to grace, but here's where they differ. Because God's grace relates to sinners and their state before God the judge, but mercy relates to the condition of the sinner in their sin. You know, God forgives the offender. Mercy, dear church, compassionately helps the sinner recover. God's mercy doesn't just save you and leave you to yourself to figure it out. His mercy is such that He rescued you from the domain of darkness and then transferred you into the kingdom of His beloved Son. But you, Psalm 86.15 says, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. In truth, Mounts in his commentary states this, quote, In the salvation of human beings, God is wholly subject. Men and women are wholly objects. Quote. His mercy overflows. His, his mercy is abundant. And when you, Christian, are reminded of the mercy He has shown towards you, when you, Christian, are reminded that you are helpless, unable to do anything to earn salvation, His mercy will lead you to worship. You will beat your breast like the tax collector. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Why are you merciful to me? And God's answer to that is, because I am. 
We know there's nothing in us that's attractive. There's nothing in us that influenced God. No, on His own, His own steadfast love that tells us He loves us because He does. So we glory in Him. Verse 5 concludes by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. You know, some have taken this washing to refer to baptism. You know, I believe this context would inform us otherwise. While in the act of baptism and its ceremony, it does, it does symbolize a believer's salvation and that they are professing publicly the work that Christ has done. And, and here, though, the thrust is the work that God has done in saving us, not any work or action on our part. And so the washing of regeneration speaks of God when He saves a sinner, He washes away all their guilt and shame and forgives them of their sin. In Ephesians 5, there it speaks of the church and that we were cleansed by the washing of water with the word that cleansing happens on the inside. This regeneration is the idea of giving new life where there is only deadness. Regeneration carries the idea of being born again. You know, one of the earliest moments, memories that I have was when my dad passed away. It's one of the really only memories I have of kind of that season. I was four years old. And I remember vividly standing next to the casket. And I didn't know what was going on. But I remember looking at him and then looking around, seeing my mom bawling her eyes out, seeing family members on their knees. I distinctly remember how helpless and hopeless it was. He's gone. And there's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing he can do about it. And as much as they tried to make him look like he's alive, he's laying there. He's not getting up. There's no life in him. And so Christian, when you were regenerated, you were in a state of deadness. And we're given life. And it's through the Holy Spirit. And it's also by the Spirit that you're being renewed. And this speaks of sanctification. You begin to put off the old and put on the new. Your mind begins to be transformed and renewed. This miraculous, right? This is, this is miraculous. We're not too far removed from verse 3, how we used to live. But because God saved you and renews you, your life, your faculties, your mind, how you think, your worldview... How you begin to live will all begin to look different. You know, in some ways, what manifests out will be radical. Maybe maybe you malign people. Maybe you blasphemed a lot. Maybe you cursed a lot. And then now, now God has given you a new song, and rather than speaking in those ways, you speak different, and it's noticeable. Such regeneration and renewal is so transformative for the Christian. It is, it is so distinct for the Christian that, again, it's compared to when someone is dead as compared now to someone who's being alive. It's that distinct. Chrysostom says this, quote, For as when a house is in a ruinous state, no one places props under it, nor makes any addition to the old building, but pulls it down to its foundations and rebuilds it anew. So in our case, God has not repaired us but has made us anew. End quote. And sanctification is such, dear church, that it's a lifetime of growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. It's a progressive setting apart from this world and this gradual growth in becoming more and more like Christ. You become more and more aware of your sin. You become more aware of what you were like. You become more aware that if it weren't for God saving me, I would still be living that way. So verse 6 now reminds us that He, God, saved us through the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We see the Trinity here, don't we? Verse 5, He saved us. God is the initiator. The end of verse 5, it is through the Holy Spirit that we were regenerated and given life and are being continually renewed. And now in verse 6, 
through the work of Christ and His obedience, not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Christ, who has been completely poured out for us as an offering by which His sacrifice appeased God. You know, Christ lived the life we couldn't live. Christ died the death we deserved to die. Christ, who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf. Christ on the cross was completely poured out. Because Christ on the cross gave us what was most precious. Himself. Christ didn't hold back. He didn't give us what we deserve. Rather, Christ gave us what we need. Which is Him. And through this miraculous exchange, by which through faith, I believe in Him, I believe in His death, in His burial, in His resurrection, all of my filth and my righteous deeds that are filthy rags, all of that has been transferred upon Him in this unfair, miraculous exchange of His righteousness and His salvation and His mercy now has been imputed, transferred over to me when Christ saves, He saves completely. When Christ heals, He heals completely. You don't need anything else. You have everything in Him. You are not yet perfect until you get to heaven. But until then, all you need in this life, all the comfort, all the hope, can be found in Christ. Because He's sufficient. Christ's love, His kindness, His mercy overflows. It's abundant. His sacrifice is complete. Which is why He's the only one that can say, It is finished. So that, in verse 7, being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You know, there's a sense that these verses, 4 through 7, it truly can stand alone. This is the complete gospel. All the members of the Trinity present in our salvation, glorious truths regarding our salvation, that we were regenerated, we were renewed, we were being sanctified. Verse 7, justified, which means we were declared righteous. Justified is this one-time judicial act with ongoing effects and it would lead the believer's life to now the ultimate hope amidst the darkness of eternal life. You know, this should sound familiar to us because back in chapter 1 when Paul even began this letter, it was the same three themes. Justification, sanctification, glorification. We have been made heirs, our text says. Eternal life is yours, Christian. Well, yes, this text can stand alone. It obviously stands within the context of Titus chapter 3 because Paul here knows that living in an evil world will be very difficult. But nothing, I mean nothing here, nothing that happens here, no amount of morally corrupt laws can be passed and no amount of increased taxation, no amount of selfishness in this world can take away your inheritance of eternal life. That's secure. No, that's a promise. That hope is not wishing like the world wishes. This hope is a confidence. No, what God says will ultimately happen. What God says will happen will happen. We've been reminded that in an evil pagan world, this is how we are to live. We've been reminded this is how we used to live. We've been reminded of the gospel and fourth, our final point, Paul reminds believers. This is why this is important. Implications of godly living. Paul begins verse 8 with a familiar phrase. This is a trustworthy statement. In other words, this is a faithful saying. You know, this phrase is uniquely used by Paul. There are five of them in the pastoral epistles. Four of them are in the letters to Timothy and the fifth one we find right here. This, Paul is referring to this, what was just said regarding salvation and God saving us. Again, as I mentioned, this could really stand alone and it would capture within its own words, verses 4 through 7, the full gospel. So this is a trustworthy statement. could very well have become a creed in the early church. This creed uh, in which it was recited often, a catechism, if you will, could have also been made into a hymn that the church sang all the time to remind themselves. 
the following sentence gives us some further insight. And it says there, and concerning these things, these things would certainly refer to all that's been said from verse 1 of chapter 3 to now. But I believe it also includes all of what was said in chapter 2. Because the beginning of chapter 2, that's where Paul started admonishing the Cretan Christians, this is how you are to live. And those instructions continue on to chapter 3. So concerning these things, all of these things, how to live within the context of the church. Chapter 2, how to live within the context of an evil world. Chapter 3, and what motivates this type of living, both in chapter 2 and 3, remind them of the gospel. The good news, these things we are to speak confidently. Why? So that those who have believed God, true believers, True Christians is what is in view here. Once true believers are reminded of how they used to be and how God saved them from their sin, will now motivate and thrust them into a life engaging in good deeds. You know, these good deeds come from a heart that's been softened. Softened by the kindness of God. This motivation of engaging in good deeds, it... It comes because now you're gripped by the mercy of God. This, this, this motivation now is because you're grateful for the work of Christ and, and reliant now on the Spirit for renewal, engaging in good deeds right where you are, praying for those who are lost around you, living in such a way as was reminded of us in verses 1 and 2, engaging in good deeds as far as being a light in a dark world, being salt, of the earth being a conduit for good in this world that doesn't care about good, much less even thinks about it. Good deeds are being heralds for the truth, speaking the truth in love, being unafraid to stand for truth, being stand for God. It's sharing our faith in Christ and showing by how we are, how we are in the church, how we are in the workplace, how we are on the campus, that we're sojourners here. We're living in such a way as to have this eternal hope that while it could be so frustrating, so enraging to see the things going on around us, we are drawn back to God who is sovereign. He's fully in control. I can have hope in a world that is hopeless. This life, this gospel-powered, sanctified, obedient life is important because, lastly, it is good and profitable for men. It is good and profitable for men insofar as believers, I should say unbelievers, will be attracted. They will be drawn to Christ. They will be drawn to His church because of the lives lived out by whom He's graciously transformed. You know, to conclude, the theme with which Paul started this letter marches on. Sound doctrine leads to sound living. Right doctrine demands of you, Christian, right living. How timely, how relevant this is for us today. To live in such a way as we are called to live is impossible. It's impossible if not for the grace, kindness, and mercy of God in Satan. And in saving you, he didn't leave it to you to figure it out as if he, you know, it's up to you. But no, he's given you his spirit that continually renews you to newness of life. And that newness of life manifests in a life of virtue that allows for Christ's church to be this beacon of hope that draws sinner sinners to the only one who can rid of their deadness and make them alive. Oh, this is the Christ that Paul preached. This is the Christ, your church, that we preach. Because He is the saving Christ. And in living in such a way as we are commanded to live, we'll most glorify Him. Let's pray.
O Lord, it should feel impossible on our own to live in these ways. And there may have been times we tried to live in these ways and it only lasted but a little while because it was on our own willpower and it was our our own uh, adrenaline. It was for our own selfish motivations. But God, you've outlined such a life sustained by God's, by your kindness, sustained by the Spirit who continually renews and, and sustained by Christ who gives all, who is, who is an abundant in helping us where we can have hope. Oh, you've given us these truths so that we can live a powerful, exemplary life that's been transformed by the gospel where we are. Oh, where, where, where we live is dark. Lots going on that could so frustrate us. So, God, if need be, may we ask for forgiveness for engaging in ways that, that your scripture tells us not to. Oh, but Lord, may we be motivated by our gospel. May we be motivated, God, by remembering how we used to live. May we be motivated by, by what life was like when we remember when we were separate from Christ. And may that thrust us, Lord, into engaging in good deeds so as to make the church, so as to make Christ exalted and proclaimed among even just where we are right now. Because this community, our culture, it needs hope. And hope can only be found in Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.